1: It's Matthew Zachary, and welcome back to Out of Patience. What was once a show is now a party right here on the same feed you already subscribed to. Why? Because I'm now the ringleader of a whole new cast of senior correspondents with segments featuring opinion pieces, rants, and the latest news about the shit show that is our fabulous healthcare system. The only thing that hasn't changed is our mission to make healthcare suck less for everyone. Let's get started. Hello, friends, welcome back. Dr. Rich Parker is the chief medical officer at Arcadia, which is going to sound boring as a data company for patients, but it's super cool. We have a great conversation, but it's actually super cool, and we try to break that down for you on today's show. He's a yoga buff. His original career path was in Chinese linguistics, which surprisingly came in handy on his trajectory to become chief medical officer of Beth Israel Deaconess up in Massachusetts, which led to his role at Arcadia. But we just dive into all sorts of cool history and nostalgia. And what was it like to rifle through files in the 1980s? And surprise, surprise, he remembers his very first email address. All that and more right now. Let's get started. Do you accept J.R.R. Tolkien as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Okay, that's the right answer. All right, Dr. Rich Parker, welcome to Out of Patients. Thank you. How you doing? I'm doing great. Where are you calling in from?
2: I'm calling in from my armchair that I've been sitting in for the last two and whatever years.
1: I mean, I hope you're getting up and just getting some blood pumping in your body then.
2: Oh, I do yoga every morning.
1: Do you, you leave the chair to do the yoga, or you like chair yoga?
2: This is not chair yoga, my friend. Okay. This is real yoga.
1: Well, I, I mean, I'm stoked to have you on the show. It's been a long time coming. Mando, I have a lot of questions to ask you. Okay, my, fire away. But my first one is kind of like the, the, the softball question. What got you into medicine?
2: Well, that's actually an interesting question, because I didn't start there. I started in college as a Chinese language major having spent a year in Thailand in high school. And then I was being a summer camp counselor after college, not knowing what I was going to do. And this little light went on that I did want to become a doctor. And I was really inspired by the camp nurse and doctor who were wonderful people. And that's what got me started all those years ago.
1: I went to summer camp too, all throughout the 80s. And we had the infirmary.
2: Yes, It was the infirmary, and that's where I would hang out and watch these wonderful people, Al and Judy Muja, the doctor and the nurse, and they would care for anyone who came their way, whether it was a splinter or vomiting or acne or infection or homesickness. They just handled everybody so generously and graciously and skillfully, and I thought, you know what? I like that. That was my beginning.
1: I mean, everyone dreaded the infirmary. By the way, the word infirmary alone here in 2022 just sounds like so wrong to call it an infirmary.
2: Well, it's for the infirm.
1: Yes. So my fellow bunkmates, we're all terrified of the infirmary because we mostly went there for like when we scraped our knee. because you know, uh, things weren't padded with styrofoam like they are today in our parks and playgrounds. And our biggest fear was, I forget the name of it, there was like an alcohol spray they put on your – your, your knee, your scraped knees. Do you remember what that was called?
2: Yeah. Well, if you're old enough, it was merthiolate. It was that purple solution that stung like hell and was probably really bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) If
1: only the thalidomide of of knee scrapes. Yeah. Right.
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah. My goodness.
1: Yeah. So that's exciting. The infirmary inspired you to go into medicine. Yep. Where did you practice? What what residency internship? What What was that like?
2: Sure. Well, first I went to med school. So I would hope I was so. Two, yeah, I was two years at Dartmouth and two years at Brown for med school. And then I did my residency at the New England Deaconess Hospital in Boston for three years, uh, which was a great experience. And then the chief of medicine there, Dr. Mullering, offered me a job and I stayed for the next 30 years. Oh, only 30 years. Yeah, I have a little problem with job longevity. So
1: (laughs) that's commitment. 30 years. Wow.
2: Yeah. 1985
1: to 2015. You're like the sports almanac of medicine history.
2: Well, there are others with longer tenures than I, but these days, 30 years is pretty good.
1: I mean, my God, the progress that we could point to. I always like to say that today we have much better problems to have than kind of just dying of stuff back in the day.
2: Well, truth be told, when I started in 1985, it was really the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And our hospital, New England Deaconess Hospital in Boston, was the center in Boston for the AIDS epidemic. So I learned a lot fast about AIDS um, starting in 1985. And that experience, of course, is very interesting historically now to look back on, given what we've just been through the last three years.
1: Oh, of course, and I, I've always been inspired by the people that started ACT UP because it was really, I mean, I'm a history buff and we, we did a documentary last year about the history of advocacy in healthcare and cancer kind of started in the 60s and 70s with Mary Lasker and the NCI and just the idea of what do we do? <laughs> like, can we stop dying of everything? And HIV sprung out and a lot of the people that started ACT UP were inspired by the people that fought for something like the American Disabilities Act. <laughs> so it's possible if you rally the right angry people, you can actually move the needle. You shouldn't have to go to those extremes to do it. But if they didn't do it, it wouldn't happen. Correct. So let's stay in our DeLorean as an aging Gen Xer myself. I like to remind people that there didn't used to be an internet and Things were very different in medicine. I was diagnosed in 96, I think when I had AOL floppy disks. And access to anything, awareness of anything, there was no data. There was like hope and pray and
2: chaos. There was data, but it was scattered, siloed, minimal. Now we have a lot of data. Sometimes we have too much data, but I think we're getting a little smarter about aggregating data in useful ways, frankly, to move science forward a little bit faster than the gold standard, which is, as you know, the randomized controlled trials. So we could talk about that if you like. But yeah, I think the data is better now.
1: Do you remember the first time anything internet-y showed up in your practice?
2: <laughs> well, I, I really have a comical story about that because our hospital was one of the first to get an electronic medical record. So when I started practicing medicine after residency in 1988, there, there were no electronic medical records. We had paper charts, we hand wrote everything, that's the way it was. And then one day, something called a PC appeared on my desk. And I'm, I'm sorry,
1: just, a what? Is that an acronym I should be aware of?
2: Yep, yeah, it stands for politically correct. <laughs> and it was on my desk and I was told that I was to turn it on And learn about it. And I scoffed at being the Luddite that I was. I said, Well, I I don't really have any need for that. And my wife used to bring flowers in every Monday for my office. And I had flowers sitting on top of that little computer for a better part of a year. And finally, someone came down and said, You have to turn that thing on. There are a lot of very important messages there for you. And so finally someone taught me how to turn it on and get my email messages and get into the electronic record. And there were several hundred messages that I had missed, of course. And so that was the beginning. So,
1: do you remember your first email address?
2: Yes, it was rparker at bidmc.harvard.edu.
1: I want to remind my listeners that getting an email address in the 1980s or 90s, that it was actually your name and not a string of numbers, was a bit of a privilege. Right. My first email address when I started at Binghamton in 1992 was bb07840 at binghamton.edu. Like, I wasn't even a person.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) my God. Yeah. So you went from having the greatest paperweight on earth to to realizing you had a thousand emails to read.
2: And the funny thing is I started really as an anti- EMR person because I was used to my paper chart. I liked it. I knew how to do it. And then I obviously, as you know, became chief medical officer for Arcadia, which is a healthcare tech company. So I think I've come a long way. It did take me a few decades, but I did make the transition from a paper and pen doctor to we've got to have the data. Everyone's got to have the EMR. We've got to get this so everyone can use it in an interoperable way. So That's been my little journey with data.
1: You may quite possibly be the first guest I've had on this show or any of the shows I've done since 2007 that came from a pedagogical background in Chinese linguistics.
2: Is that what you said? Chinese language and history. Correct.
1: Right. And now you practice medicine. Has that come in handy in any way? Like what would you learn about that? Understanding that there's a world outside America.
2: Yeah, the fun is that I still see patients today. I work at our local hospice on weekends. And whenever I have a Chinese speaking person, I do speak a little Chinese with them and they really love it. So for doctors, whenever we're able to speak to a patient in their native language, they mm-hmm. really appreciate it.
1: That's got to be like the coolest surprise ever.
2: Yeah, it's fun. I say, <laughs> so your Chinese speaking listeners will know what I'm talking about. I know you don't.
1: I you might as well have been talking in, I don't know, Aramaic or something to me or or old Latin, (laughs) not even new Latin, old Latin.
2: But actually, back to your question, a better answer is really that Chinese language, the written language doesn't have letters. It has characters. It's very laborious to learn it. And I spent several years working on learning how to write characters and read characters. And I really think that people who speak Chinese and read and write Chinese, I think their brains work in a slightly different way. Because I know that when I was speaking Chinese fluently, and I was, because I spent my junior year of college in Taiwan and I became very fluent Chinese, um, it's, it's almost a different way of thinking in that language.
1: It's kind of an understated benefit to being a human on this planet when you realize that there are other cultures besides the one you're brought up in and how much perspective that gives you on your view of the world and what you want to do with your life. I want to talk about this idea of a physician network, free internet, right? How did doctors communicate with each other besides maybe Pony Express or Carrier Pigeon before the internet?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's a really interesting question. One of the sad things that I think has happened is the kind of, we could call it the atomization, that's not atom, but atom, A-T-O-M, atomization, where individuals are just doing their own thing. When I started as an attending physician in 1988, I had lunch every day in a place called the doctor's dining room, which now sounds so incredibly quaint, because they don't exist anymore. But back in those days, at lunchtime, many of the doctors would get together, internists, radiologists, surgeons, pathologists. We talk about cases. We talked about politics. We talk about the hospital. And we, we learned from each other. And it was really wonderful. And we had a culture and we had a camaraderie that is really gone now. Now people tend to eat lunch at their desks and they look at their screens and their internet and don't talk with each other as much as they used to. So at a local level, we used to have that going on. On a broader level, there were societies. So every specialty, like internal medicine, pediatrics, rheumatology, you name it, had its society, and they still do today. So we would get together at meetings a few times a year, but it's very different now.
1: Yeah, it, it it just harkens back to how the art of conversation and community with your peers has kind of vanished. And we relish in, let's go to this conference and see each other in the real world, but then we go home back to our screens.
2: Right. So I think in fairness, nobody wants to go back from an EMR, EHR, back to paper charts. There are so many advantages of having an electronic record. For example, because in the old days, a patient would come in at 3 a.m. to the ER. We had no records on them. The records were locked up in a doctor's office or in the hospital medical record room in the basement. Now a patient comes in at 3 a.m. and we have all their records electronically. So that is a tremendous step forward plus we can communicate with each other we can share records so easily presuming that we're in the same network now if we're not in the same network then sharing data now is still a problem so i would say on balance it's a great step forward to have the electronic record nobody wants to go back but there are some downsides too that we have alluded to
1: well let's pick up on that after the break We're back with Dr. Rich Parker. All right. So Arcadia, by the way, growing up on Staten Island, there was an arcade named Arcadia. So when I saw the name of the company, it brought me back to like Donkey Kong Junior days. Gotcha. We are not that. I would hope you're not that because who plays those anymore except at these arty, bougie arcade retro places. So what? what is Arcadia? How was it started? What's its point?
2: So Arcadia in a nutshell, is a healthcare information technology company. And we do two main things. Number one, we aggregate large amounts of medical related information. We aggregate electronic medical record data every night. We take claims data from insurers like Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurers like Blue Cross, Aetna, Anthem, you name it. So for a healthcare organization, a big organization, let's say an accountable care organization, like my former employer, Beth Israel, now Beth Israel Leahy, we aggregate all their data because the data is coming in from all these disparate sources that is not interoperable. And we clean it up, we curate it, we make it usable, and then we supply a set of analytics that sits on top of that data lake so that analysts, doctors, medical directors, Quality people can do the population health work that they need to do, which I could describe for you if you would like.
1: So where does the actual person with cancer, rare disease, mild to severe something, something, where do they live in the ether of this computerness?
2: Well, everyone has a record, an electronic record somewhere, almost everyone. So, if there are now 340 million people in the United States, our company Arcadia has records on, you know, somewhere around 180 million. So, we have a lot of medical records. So, you might not be in our system, but there's a good chance you are in our system. And we have customers all over the country for whom we aggregate their data and give them analytics.
1: How does this help a patient get? better care or help their doctor talk to them about something is that what this does
2: yes so let me give you some examples of that so for example the the doctor's brain which is the human brain is not very good at the following question doctor tell me how many of your patients have not gotten vaccines this year who should have how many patients have not gotten mammograms who should have have not gotten pap smears have not gotten colonoscopies The doctor will give you a blank stare because they don't know they don't know what they don't know but computers are very good at this so the arcadia system our system will in less than a second list all the patients for example who are have what we call gaps in care so things that they should have gotten in the calendar year that they didn't so that's a real simple concrete example of how we help patients and then when we generate that list of patients who have gaps in care we could also do the text outreach automatically to the patient's cell phone so that the doctor doesn't have to do anything. So we try to take work off the doctor's plate and improve the health of the population. So those quality measures, those gaps in care, we're very useful at improving that.
1: So I come from the advertising industry before I started Stupid Cancer. I think my listeners pretty much know this about my my history and my career, and we used to talk about like push technology and today that's just serving ads to people or, or, or bringing things to the customer that they didn't know they could be looking for. Do you consider the way in which you're speaking to patients when you text them? Is there a breakdown about their literacy or, or what their condition is? I mean, we joke about the jargon of like social determinants of zip codes. How do you skin the cat depending on who you're – supporting on the patient level with these texts or your communications
2: so if we're doing outbound text messages to patients obviously we're extremely careful about never listing any illness that they might have we don't put any hipaa problematic information in a text message we might do something like say we you know we notice that you have an upcoming appointment and you know you might be missing a vaccine or something like that. Or we might say, during the COVID epidemic, we might say, here's a URL, here's a website you can go to to get good information about COVID. Or we have a customer out in the Pacific Northwest, there are wildfires, they need to get a message out about if you have asthma, if you have emphysema, if you have respiratory problems, here's how to deal with smoke. If you have a problem, here's who you call for help. So it's more generic information when it's outbound text
1: so like the amber alert of wellness exactly has that ever been a sentence
2: i just (laughs) no you just coined it and we thank you for it and you will get full attribution
1: intellectual property signed sealed delivered so what you're telling me now self-servingly is that you can now text 160 million people that we did a podcast together
2: theoretically we could do that i think in reality It is our customers who determine what text gets sent out, not Arcadia. (laughs) So I'm guessing that most of them are not going to be saying, hey, Matt said X, (laughs) Y, Z. Um, It's more about their needs than our needs. But anyway, it was a good idea.
1: So how does someone who spent 30 years at, at Deaconess practicing medicine, how does that transfer to a chief medical officer role at a data company?
2: I was a chief medical officer at Beth Israel Deaconess for 15 years. So I had a kind of warm up on how to be a chief medical officer. So while I was seeing patients over there, I started to learn the trade of being a doctor administrator and learning about data and how to use data and how to motivate doctors and how to do population health and what we call value-based care. So we've really only scratched the surface of, what the tools do. So for example, when I was chief medical officer at Beth Israel Deaconess, now Beth Israel Leahy, we looked at quality measures. We looked at utilization patterns to improve them. We looked at arcane situations like coding. Uh, We looked at very important population health initiatives like care management, where our algorithms can identify patients who would benefit from a nurse calling them. And working with them on their medical issues, getting people into the office, helping them get their medications, a lot of basic blocking and tackling. So I had the chief medical officer experience clinically, and then I made the jump to be chief medical officer at a tech company, which, yes, entailed a lot of learning, which I'm still doing, and I have greatly enjoyed that learning because it's interesting and it's fun and I think it's useful.
1: So your relationship with the patient is sort of direct communications relevant to what they need in a sort of a HIPAA-compliant, non-medical fashion. There was an article on LinkedIn this week from Omnicom, I don't know, the holding company, big agency group, where one of their um, health officers or chief something-something said, I mean, akin to that only data will help us understand patients better. How do you feel about that?
2: I think that's a bit of an exaggeration and maybe slightly self serving. I mean, people get on their horse and they like to ride it. Yes, data is incredibly important. And for example, with COVID, timely data has helped us understand a lot of things really quickly that's been necessary to save lives. So, you know, I'm all for data, yes, but we shouldn't confuse. Better or excellent data with being the solution to all of healthcare's problems because that is really not accurate.
1: I mean, we're taping this in July. This will probably drop in uh, like a month or so. So the relevancy of what, what I'm about to say might be time stamped. But as of today, speaking of pushing things to people, I got a notification from New York State that there is now a monkeypox contact tracing opportunity that I can opt into. So assuming the world is still here when this episode drops and monkeypox hasn't become the Brad Pitt World War Z nightmare of the universe. Is that a fair way to think about pushing health information to people more of like an
2: interventive prompt? It's a good question, Matt. I, I think what we need to work towards in the United States, frankly, is more rational, better funded public health that the public has faith in and trust, because we have really mixed this whole thing up with politics and a lot of people have tuned out. And that scares me because when people tune out and do not listen to important health messages, it could be monkeypox. By the time this drops, it could be Ebola. Who knows? We have to have good data and we have to have faith and trust in the data. Because we have good data, but people don't trust it or don't listen to it. It is worth nothing.
1: I'm going to make this up in a a sort of like a summer executive, but there's a lot of long-term follow-up research to show that quality of life is often determined by community wealth, and quality of care is often determined by medical practice. This idea behind um, trust if there's a yeah. distrust of the system, you know there's less distrust of peer-to-peer conversations, and I think we could both agree that the way in which the system talks to patients is a little academic, you know, a little, um, you know, a little hoity-toity, and a little protected by attorneys. So where does the authenticity lie in helping individuals? be spoken to in a way that they feel connected to with empathy?
2: Right. Well, it, it's a great question, and I think we have to break it down a little bit. So when we're talking about communication about healthcare, it comes to the public in different ways. From the top, it comes from the federal government. It comes from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. And then it comes from state From the state level, every state has health departments and the state puts out its information and then bring it down a level. Towns and counties have uh, boards of health that put information out on websites and then bring it down a further level. Hopefully, everyone has a doctor. Not everybody, but I want everyone to have a doctor. And hopefully, their doctor is presenting health information to them in a way that they believe and trust. And of course, we were talking earlier about Arcadia which works with our large customers mostly to get help get information out to patients. So, I think at all of those levels from the federal all the way down to the doctor's office there's room for improvement.
1: Is there a quick like success story you can close us out with? You mentioned prompting people like hey, you didn't get your vaccination yet.
2: Does that work? Yeah, we have a great little success story from one of our customers umqua U-N-P-Q-U-A, out in Oregon. And they had a situation with wildfires and smoke. And they had um, were given by the state a limited number of air purifiers, which are very helpful to people who are experiencing smoke inhalation in their homes. And they used data, actually using the Arcadia system, and they used data to quickly generate a correct list of their patients with respiratory problems who would most benefit from these air purifiers. It's a small example, but I love it because they had a problem, they used data, and they solved it. That's fantastic. Yeah. And we have lots like that. That's just the first that came to mind.
1: I think leading with that in all of your marketing materials is really, really a good way to go. It's nice to know that there are things
2: like this that actually work. It's not all broken. No, it's not all broken. And I, I see tremendous improvement all over the country. And mostly it's kind of local ACOs, healthcare organizations who've decided they need to do better. And they're using population health. They're using data. They hire smart people and they're getting it done. So it's patchy, but it's definitely getting better.
1: Dr. Rich Parker is the Chief Medical Officer of Arcadia and a survivor of summer camp
2: infirmaries. Thank you so much for coming on <laughs> Out
1: of patience, I hope to see you in real life soon.
2: Thanks, Matt, really appreciate it. Take good care.
1: Out of patience with Matthew Zachary is an script Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Sarah Rosa Davies, it's mixed and edited by Sarah Rosa Davies and Kyle Moore. Special thanks to Brianna Seely for added support. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us, and we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's off script, no